So I'd like to just start off here with um, this piece about listening to Dharma talks. And I was thinking more, last time I talked about uh, kind of staying in the body and, and uh, kind of this presence of being there. And um, I thought this evening that to have this um, ability to listen between the words, uh, this place, this space. And so much of the time, I think that uh, where we find uh, peace is actually those moments between our thoughts and the moments between uh, sensations and moments between breath that are available, the kind of spaciousness that um, is the thing we don't notice. We notice the things themselves and not the space that surrounds it. So I'd like to just offer that as a um, place to begin. Uh, This offering is the space between things. So tonight I would like to um, talk really about two things, and it has to do a lot with the what are known as the five sort of spiritual faculties. And uh, I'd like to really uh, emphasize two of these pieces. And traditionally these five, uh, which as married so beautifully, uh, did the list of the seven uh, factors last night. Uh, these five being really uh, faith and energy and uh, mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. Uh, those are the five. And the places I'd like to sort of, uh, what, uh, the way I do it, kind of twirl around them, is uh, this piece about faith and wisdom, uh, because those are the complementary forces that uh, keep, uh, keep it in balance as uh, the energy and concentration uh, are also uh, uh, something that we work with in our practice. This is from Sri Ramakrishna. Once a man was about to cross the sea. Bishashana wrote Rama's name on a leaf and tied it to the corner of the man's a cloth and said to him, Don't be afraid. Have faith and walk on the water. But look here. The moment you lose faith, you will, be, you, will, you will be drowned. The man was walking easily on the water. Suddenly, he had an intense desire to seat what was tied to his cloth. He opened it and found only a leaf with the name of Rama written on it. What is this, he thought. Just the name of Rama? As soon as doubt entered his mind, he sank under the water. So there's this Pali word sada, which means faith, and we've uh, spoken about this before. And um, I sort of I was thinking about Mary's talk last night and where, kind of where to go uh, from that. And I thought about these factors of what, uh, what 
was really important uh, as, as kind of a, a way of uh, noticing them deeply. And I know for myself for a long time, uh, it's actually taken a long time to, uh, what, um, maybe a little slow, uh, sift through what's really available uh, to me in the present of what I need to uh, be open. I remember when I was young, I, uh, I had, you know, we all have these moments that inspire us and kind of uh, direct us in some way towards our journey, our spiritual journey. And I have this story I tell because it, um, uh, it uh, keeps me inspired over and over again. When I, when I have these moments of doubt and I'm not, uh, I'm ready to sink in the water. And uh, I again uh, get inspired. So in uh, 1966, when I came to California to the Haight-Ashbury to kind of uh, what um, uh, Translove Airways to kind of find uh, what I was looking for freedom. I was truly looking for freedom. And uh, I heard that there was a lot of uh, what in Europe, I remember in Paris and London, uh, people talking about uh, this, this uh, kind of uh, uh, wonderful thing that was uh, in process. And they were right. It really was quite amazing. Uh, but at the time, uh, I really had no, um, what, uh, I had, um, I lacked one of these very essential qualities, and it was quite simple. It's, it's the second one called wisdom. <laughs> and I was thinking about Mary's uh, talk last night about talking about uh, her foot and going, I was thinking about the Dominican Hospital in Santa Cruz. And so, uh, in 1967, when they sort of said the hate was dead, and uh, so I moved south <laughs> after sort of different communes up north to uh, Santa Cruz, into the mountains, actually to Boulder Creek. And uh, being kind of this commune hopper and, and uh, what, having, uh, ha having been deeply enmeshed in the... Um, subculture and um, drug culture at the time, uh, I, I got hepatitis. And, uh, I, and the thing was, at that time, I had no awareness of, 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 of anything about health. I mean, at that time, you know, I was, you know, 20 or whatever, and I was indestructible. And so... Um, Uh, I got hepatitis, and actually the Dominican hospital, they actually threw me out because my friends came and smoked pot there. And, <laughs> and so they didn't know what to do with me, so they, they, they made me leave. And 
I went up to this house in Boulder Creek, and um, I would every night I would vomit because I didn't know you couldn't eat oils and all the, the kind of uh, health issues that, and I was my skin was very yellow and. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was a li- really a mess. And I was in bed most of the time, for weeks, and didn't seem to be getting better. And it felt like sort of my journey had sort of come to an end in some way. And one night, um, and this was sort of a communal house, everyone left, and I was there by myself. And I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, somewhere, I don't know, whatever it was, it was night, and I woke up. And I woke up and I remember sitting up on my pillow. And one of the things was I could hear this sound. you know. And outside this window was a little boulder creek. There was the sound of the creek. But this was a different sound. It's completely different. And sometimes it sounded like this kind of And other times it was quite angelic and, and uh, uh, uplifting. And then... Uh, there was a kind of a wind. There was one window at the end of the room. It was kind of a, a very small room, uh, bigger than a closet, but not too much bigger. And it had this one little window, and I could see this big, this big fat man, and he had this kind of funny hat on, and he was holding this hat. And I watched this for some time, and it was sort of a. Um, it didn't fit into my, I mean, I'd taken a lot of drugs. I'd seen, you know, a lot of strange things. But this, I wasn't on anything. And this was very strange to me. And there was a, a really a strong um, uh, sense of, of change or difference in this. And it went on. I, don't, I just don't know how long it went on. But, uh, and the sounds finally began to uh, kind of subside and... and uh, I kind of came back, I went to sleep, maybe I was asleep a couple hours, and I woke up, and I woke up and my skin was no longer yellow, and it was actually quite clear. And I got up and I looked in the mirror, my eyes were were still yellow. And I remember I went out, and it wasn't raining, uh, it had stopped, kind of like right now maybe, uh, between the rains of uh, winter storms in, in the mountains of Santa Cruz. And I went out and I sat on this log and I cried. And I cried and I just, all this um, kind of sadness. And, and a lot of it was mine, but a lot of it was just about kind of the world and, and what, what, what was going on, what was going on with me, and was there any, anywhere to go with any of this. Um, uh, so... Um, and now I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, a year later, uh, I'm actually in New Delhi. I have uh, decided that uh, uh, California was great, but it wasn't that great. So I had to move on. And uh, so I'd gone back to Europe and then gone overland. Uh, and I arrived in India, and I was actually in India to find a, a teacher. And at that time, it was, it was actually I was looking for this Sufi teacher. And um, I met this woman, Frida Beatty, uh, in, in New Delhi, who said, oh, you have to go to Kathmandu. 
you just have to go to Kathmandu. There's going to be this teacher there, and he comes once every 12 years to do these um, um, ceremonies. And so I decided I would go. So I made it up to Kathmandu. And um, I went up, it was on this big mountain, it's called Swainbu, it's, called, it's known as this, what, uh, Swainbu means this, uh, what, the self-liberated mountain. And I went up there and there's a large temple up there and they were having this uh, ceremony and it was uh, called the Black Hat Ceremony. And there was the teacher there. Uh, and the other thing was I had been trekking up in the mountains just prior to this. And there were all these Tibetans that I had, I mean, people, these were the most um, original people I had ever encountered in my life. And even years later, I've, I, uh, it was something encountering these people because they were sort of nomadic tribes people that had come out of Tibet and, and come down through uh, Mustang and, and uh, uh, through the Annapurna Range uh, down to Kathmandu for this. And this was a, like a calling every 12 years, and it's, it's a kind of family pilgrimages. And um, I looked and I recognized this man from uh, this a year before that, almost a year to the date almost before that. Um, and somebody handed me a little funky pamphlet uh, this first day I was up there. And it was made on really, I don't know, India, sometimes the paper is just, uh, you know, it's looked like it had been in the sun for three months. And, um, and it described how this teacher Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, that uh, the hat that he wore, this uh, hat was made, they say that it was made from a, a, the, its original, um, what vision was of a thousand celestial hairs from uh, from angels or something devas, and that uh, the sometime in the twelfth century the, the the emperor of China had been very very ill and had gotten uh, had a miraculous uh, recovery by having this vision of this man the Karmapa, and how over centuries this uh, had come to people and they had been healed by this. Well, that didn't equate to my story at all, because I, I'm not, um, you know, an Asian. I have no uh, equitable history that would put me in that category. And yet, it's what I experienced. Um, and now, this many years later in teaching Dharma and uh, being so enmeshed in it now over 30-some years, um, I remember going up to see Karmapa. And I went up with um, this woman, uh, Joan Ewing, who uh, is known as Sultramalion now. And, um, and uh, Oli Nidal, who was a teacher from Denmark now. And we went up and he said, oh, I know you. And he was really cordial to us and it, very friendly. 
And uh, they became teachers. I did not at that time from until uh, 86 or 87. And um, I just held that as something that uh, we don't know. And this gave me this kind of thing of, I really don't know anything. And it, it gave me this inspiration that has followed all these years that um, there are things that we don't know and that can inspire us and keep us somehow uh, um, directed. And it's, it's interesting because this word faith sometimes, I'm, um, I get confused by it. I think one of the things that having lived with the Tibetans for about three years, uh, before I actually uh, started s- sitting this practice was so wonderful because there were several things that I experienced from them that was so deep that uh, helped me, uh, inspired me in my life. And one of them was just this simple sense of once the, the most basic thing was they were in their bodies. You know, culturally, they... Uh, were very uh, grounded in their um, just in their very presence. Another piece they had that was so powerful was their sense of devotion. Um, and devotion goes beyond, uh, I think. Sometimes this uh, we have the, we have this thing that we're. Uh, what, as a culture, we're kind of rationalists. And I think of my own openings in practice. And the piece I can say that helped me the most in that was my um, it was a sense of non-comparison, a sense of faith and openness to what was happening right then. You know, that was the most powerful piece. And it's the piece, I guess, somehow, and I don't know if I can do this in words, is somehow touch you in some way. For you to recognize that uh, there's more here than the little battles we do in our minds and in our bodies, and that there are all these kind of pieces coming together that um, it's very much where I started, the space between your thoughts, the space between um, your fingers, uh, between the, the things we see as solid. There is Uh, kind of the the unknown. Uh, I was thinking out when 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 I started. Uh, I'm going to try to go through this. That for me, uh, practice first was uh, first was a awakening to suffering. You know, there was this awakening to suffering. 
and I recognized uh, the limitations that I had. And then there was a longing. Uh, This longing arose. Um, And I'll just, you know, there are three words come to my mind right now was uh, God, enlightenment, and freedom. They somehow were these places that I was uh, longing to find that connection uh, from this awareness of the suffering. And then I knew somehow that I had to uh, find a path. And so there was this search. And I believe for myself, um, boy, um, I, I had to rumble a lot of different, I had to knock on a lot of different doors, you know. But there has to be this place because I know that there were some points when I was uh, in different kind of ashrams and different uh, monasteries and stuff uh, where I would, I would really question because I had this peace that um, this willingness to kind of trust, uh, which sometimes can be somewhat um, we might know as blind faith. Um, and we have to balance it with this, uh, this piece of wisdom here. As, as I said, I, I don't think I had too much of that. Uh, but I had a lot at the beginning, a lot of faith. Uh, and uh, this experience I'm talking about really uh, kept me inspired to keep, um, even when I became disappointed, and, or I've got, you know, in India, it's, it's um, I've had typhoid, dengue fever, uh, dysentery for 12 years, you know, all of it. And it gets very discouraging sometimes, and you think, you know, you just can't keep going. Um, And something, there has to be some root that allows you to kind of stay there in some way. And I encourage you because this is about you staying here. Um, And somehow, um, finding this place of faith within yourself. This... I don't know. It's. I think it starts as uh, that longing. That longing uh, turns to the path. The path turns to um, some kind of physical connection. It's either with a practice or a person, and then you begin to have some. Um, um, what it starts out as almost some fantasies from your old reality about how it's going to be, and so uh, and usually with that is some um, devotion that arises uh, or a longing to get away from the suffering, and that this might be at this time. And then at some point, uh, you have to immerse yourself in that that practice. Uh, you have to really test it. And then in testing it, um, this balancing factor 
uh, can come up. And it, it's um, not just, you know, it's not just intelligence, because it is a sense, almost an intuitive knowing, that, uh, that you can verify what the experience is of the practice itself. You know. And so there is a verified faith there. And out of that verified faith then comes kind of the uh, apex of this, which is confidence. It's confidence I can sit here in um, the low points when I'm, when, all, when I'm having a multiple hindrance attack and I, um, uh, I can't see. No. But from this place of verified faith, this place of confidence that what I've experienced in this practice, uh, which really to me is about between the spaces, you know, um, and what I mean by between the spaces, in a way, mindfulness is this ability to be in a place uh, that's neither uh, getting caught up in what it is that's happening, either pushing it away or grabbing hold of it. So it's, it's the place in between. And that there is ability to rest, to really rest in that space or spaciousness. Uh, that needs no reliance, needs no reliance outside itself. I have to say my first years of practice uh, with the Tibetan kind of uh, practice, uh, I don't have, I was thinking about uh, Mary and uh, kind of um, coming out of a sort of a Catholicism, Christian background, and Sylvia out of Judaism. Well, I really come out of my home, I think they were rationalists, I think it's called. They really um, had no affiliations. And actually, when I was 15, I remember being taken, we went to Japan and then Thailand, and being inspired by seeing the, there's a big, there's a big Buddha in Bangkok that's where the Buddha is laying down just before he dies, his parinirvana. It's huge. And I remember as a child, so inspired by that. And the monks um, in, uh, uh, in Bangkok. So I don't really know anything else, <laughs> is all I'm saying. This has been uh, what I know in my life. And what I first needed uh, when I got to, uh, when I first started living in Nepal the first year, was I needed this piece of devotion. And I would go and I circumambulate and I would um, take, uh, actually, uh, I would imagine the Buddha as a, uh, what enlightenment was, and I used to speculate about that. You know, not such good speculation, but... <laughs> Uh, it was actually very purifying. It was a very purifying practice in, uh, in really opening my heart and, and allowing me to um, drop some of my cultural, uh, I think, baggage that we carry and of this rationalism that somehow we, 
um, you know, um, that there's somehow, this is not a mystery. This is a scientific process of, that's going on. Um, you think a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, if you took somebody from a hundred years ago and you brought them here right now and you showed them some of the stuff we're doing, I think they might say it, they're miracles, they're miraculous things that have happened in just the last hundred years. It's interesting because even in the uh, in the Buddhist text, they um, they they talk about uh, the uh, willingness to kind of um, take the image of the Buddha and uh, take that into yourself and note the qualities. Uh, of that, of that being, and I'll read to you a little piece here from the. Um, from the Anagurata Nikaya. When a noble disciple contemplates upon the enlightened one, at that time his mind is not enwrapped in lust, nor in hatred, nor in delusion. At such a time his mind is rightly directed towards the perfect one, the Tagata. And with a rightly directed mind, the noble disciple gains enthusiasm for the goal, enthusiasm for the Dharma, gains the delight derived from the Dhamma. In him thus delighted, joy arises. To one who is joyful, body and mind become calm. Calm in body and mind, he feels at ease. And if at ease, the mind finds concentration. Such a one is called a noble disciple who among a humanity gone wrong has attained to what is right, who among humanity besets by troubles, dwells free of troubles. So as a purification, and I know for myself, uh, even though at that time I really didn't know very much about practice, it was uh, a really a great support and uh, has uh, supported me uh, through, a, through all these years. Uh, one other piece that I can say is also kind of a mystery, uh, that I have no uh, knowledge um, of uh, really, in a sense, how it works. But is this piece of taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, um, there's something uh, deep within us uh, that, again, is about this opening, allowing the heart to be open, that resonates when we... Um, abandon our rationalism and uh, open ourselves to uh, 
this possibility. So there's a third piece I have to bring up. I think sometimes in the West, uh, it's always a kind of difficult one to talk about. Um, but there's, there's a word, there, we have helpers. And I think we need all the help we can get. So one of the, uh, as um, one of the traditions also that uh, I felt I held to be very dear was this ability to suspend belief systems. And for me in Asia, that was uh, kind of allowing or believing that there were, uh, in Buddhist cosmology, what are called devas. And I've mentioned it before. Um, And the word translates as angels. And it's not that uh, we have to be kind of um, use them as as um, to get rid of things or get things, but that they are here as a presence and a support to your practice, and uh, that what is that that there is an unseen that is supporting all this, and if can allow you, uh, by having that, or having uh, allowed that, that view in some way, uh, that gives a tremendous amount of space, you know. And what I find is it, it uh, breaks um, some of the tenacity I have in kind of factualism. <laughs> which helps give space. Uh, and then, then I can live more this question of uh, don't know. I don't know. Um, This is from Coldridge. And, uh, the willingness to sus- uh, suspend the suspension of disbelief. Can we remain open to the possibility of things we do not yet know for ourselves with neither blind belief nor blind disbelief? So um, I leave that as a kind of other piece. (laughs) Kind of this, what, the kind of grace of faith. Uh, Also, to me, is is also known as the ten paramitas which are uh, supporting factors. 
in um, what the forces of, 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 of purity, of as we maybe suspend our disbelief and begin to um, open ourselves to ourselves and the, the kind of mystery between uh, the hard facts of how we see things and what our story is and, and who we think we are. Are these kind of forces that hold us in um, uh, what are connecting? And I'll just uh, read them off here. Um, this kind of gradual accumulation. Uh, there's generosity and morality and renunciation, wisdom and energy and patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, equanimity. And some piece of this faith is the, uh, the, the uh, supporting of those paramitas uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our actions, of how um, uh, devotion and faith and eventually confidence uh, then begins to manifest itself. Uh, in these um, parmies, these um, supports to uh, complement what Mary was talking about last night in the sense of the factors of enlightenment, to come to this place of open heart. Um, it's interesting to me that waking up, uh, a lot of times they say one of the easiest ways uh, in the suttas, to wake up, is actually right now, through this process of listening, that one stops one's continual questioning and rests uh, in the spaciousness. I remember one of the moments when my teacher, uh, in the middle of a talk like this, uh, that um, went so deep, he turned to me and he said, your face is like a mask. You know, for just, uh, I don't know where it came from or how it was in the middle of a talk, but um, I kind of got it. My face is like a mask. And the peace I felt so deeply about at that moment was uh, that I had so much, I had complete, at that time, I felt like I had complete trust and faith uh, in the moment, in my teacher, in uh, the place I was.
I don't want to, you know, there's this thing of getting attached to what happened. Um, but what I've learned is trying to find those pieces in myself uh, that allow me to somehow live that. And I think sometimes, you know, there's a... I, I, I'm, I'm very dyslexic. I don't read very well. Uh, I didn't actually... Um, I don't know if I... Sometimes I wonder if I could have made it through school. <laughs> you know, and I didn't get any help when I was young. And um, I remember the story of, uh, that, the, that uh, my teacher told about... Uh, and I remember trying to remember... Remember, one of the things was uh, why I actually came to the Theravadan system was I was uh, with my teacher in Sonata, and um, I tried to learn Sanskrit, and um, I was trying to learn Tibetan, and uh, it was pretty useless. Uh, I could barely remember one line, and then when it got to chanting and singing, I couldn't remember a line, and I thought of this uh, story of the Buddha of uh, there was two brothers who were uh, monks, and one of them uh, couldn't remember any lines. And uh, his brother actually was an arhat, and uh, and put him down. And so eventually he got very sad, and he said, "Oh, I can't do this practice. Uh, it takes more than I have to do this." And at that time, then the um, the Buddha uh, he left uh, disappointed and, and was going to uh, disrobe. And uh, the Buddha was walking along, and uh, and of course, Buddha, knowing all, <laughs> knew what was going on in his mind and where he was, and so he gave him a practice by handing him a, a white uh, kerchief, and he said, "Just rub this between your hands." And all he did was he uh, he believed what the Buddha said completely; he trusted. And I think that's the piece, you know, in the story. I got so much. He just trusted, and he started to rub this cloth together in the sun, and his hands began to sweat. And the sweat started making the cloth dirty. And just from his parmes of, of these ten parmes that he had worked on for a long time before this time, uh, he suddenly had this great opening. And um, it, as story goes, I have to finish this interesting story, was that he, the thing was, he, was, he couldn't remember any lines, but when he awakened, he got these powers. <laughs> and so he used to play tricks on his brother. So faith. Um, and it has to be held by these seven factors of enlightenment. And it has to also have this complement of wisdom. And wisdom, oh boy, it's such a big word, I don't even know where to go with it. Um, but it has some very simple fundamentals from this practice. Um, First of all, it is really 
uh, and I'll just shortly mention this, is that um, uh, first of all, it's it's an intuitiveness. Wisdom is actually an intuitiveness that takes in both the body and the heart. And uh, is actually the intellect is a servant of that, and in that it looks directly at uh, the causes and recognizes them. And those causes are very simple. First, uh, it's just the characteristics that it's all changing. And one doesn't get that intellectually. That's what I'm trying to say. Wisdom is not about the Uh, um, mental knowing of it. It is the actual knowing it in the in kind of the mind-heart-body. It is in presence. As you right now put your experience uh, in your wholeness, you can recognize this not as something of the mind, but something of the reality of this moment. And in that noticing, uh, you can recognize that there's no that, that pleasantness can't stay. It is not part of the puzzle. And in that being not part of the puzzle, then we recognize that there is this dukkha, this chaos, this uh, unsatisfactoriness, uh, simply because of the impermanence. And then if we look deeply into that, that that causation of, of um, uh, wanting it to be different than it is uh, causes the uh, distinctive differences in all the world called suffering. Um, that if we can stay with that, seeing the impermanence and then seeing uh, that we have to not want it to be different, Therefore, we let go of the craving. Then we see in a moment that this arising that's happening, uh, there is a moment of um, uh, I, the I arises in a moment. But that's all. It has no reference to the past or the future. It is just in this moment, consciousness experiences seeing, consciousness smells, it tastes, it hears, feels. And that's enough, not to go anyplace else. Um, that is wisdom. That is wisdom. So, a lot about faith, hopefully a little about wisdom, and hopefully you'll get some more wisdom here and some more faith. It's a wonderful thing when it's balanced with this practice of mindfulness. Uh, Our uh, teetering, as Mary was talking about last night, about having this balance here of energy and concentration.
So I'd like to end here. Uh, this is um, with a poem by David White called Faith. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow, night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible slither of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I refuse it. I refuse it. It is the, its smallest entry. Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Let's uh, sit for a moment. So may we uh, inhabit fully our bodies. Uh, may we find uh, deep uh, satisfaction in um, the faith and um, a wonder of the moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.